Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Day 3 and Week 2 of Dr. Neufeld's series on the Book of Romans entitled, The Heart of the Gospel. Today's message focuses on Romans 1, verses 18 to 23, and teaches the very basics of why we need Jesus as our Savior in the first place. We live in a world full of temptation that would claim to fulfill our dreams and desires, so why do we need a Savior? Let's join Dr. Neufeld now and find out. I wonder if you've ever seen an individual go through chemotherapy. It's a harsh treatment indeed. In some, it causes the hair on their head to fall out, their gums to bleed, and it leaves people with nausea and feeling weak as their body is traumatized by the poison being fed to it. It's tough stuff. Why would anyone, I mean anyone, possibly go through that? The answer is that if you don't, the cancer that has been discovered inside of you will continue to grow and it will kill you. Either the cancer will die or you will. Only the most radical treatment can save you now. That's why people submit to something as harsh as chemotherapy. Well, you and I know that. And today, I want to talk about why we need a Savior. And using the analogy I've begun with, let me say that we need one because the human situation is desperate. I'm going to explain that today, but let me put it in practical terms. If you do not know Christ... You are in great danger. And if you do know Christ, you need to see the world, your unsaved friends and loved ones, through these lenses. We've begun a study in the book of Romans, and up till now, everything has been introduction. Today, we get into the meat of the thing, into the actual teaching of this book. The first four chapters are what I call the heart of the gospel. They are the basic building blocks of Christianity. Christianity 101. This is foundation. It begins with why we need a Savior, so let's read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. At first hearing, even without examining it closely, doesn't this sound like bad news? Who wants to hear this? Some of you might say, hang it, I want a message that's a little more upbeat. It's like going to the doctor and hearing you have cancer. It's like hearing from the ship's captain that the ship is sinking. It's like having your lawyer tell you that the crown will certainly press charges. Like your accountant telling you that your business will fail. Who wants to hear bad news? Answer, not many. But what if the bad news is true news? Well, at that point, it's important to hear. This passage presents us with the truth that should terrify the human heart. Are you ready? Here it is. Truth number one. The righteous God is angry. Now, in order to get this, I want to draw your attention to the first word in verse 18. It's the word for, or therefore. So it reads, for the wrath of God is being revealed. In other words, verse 17, the previous verse, has told us that the gospel, the good news, is this. In it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. God is righteous. 
That's good news. God always does what is right, what is just, what is good. That's what God said to Abraham. Remember, he said, will not the judge of the earth do what is right? But of course, we have come to understand that this righteousness of God, that God does what is right, is also a righteousness from God in which he imparts righteousness to us. But why do we need his righteousness? That's the question. Most people think they're okay. If they die and they meet God on the other side, they tell themselves, it will be well with me. After all, God will see that I've done the best that I could. Yep, I've made mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. And God will understand that no one's perfect. But once we see that God is having no part in this thinking, that righteousness, not best efforts, motivate God's judgment, Another way to put it would be to say God has standards, and he is more concerned with his standards or his righteousness than with your efforts or mine. And so the idea that God is righteous now leads Paul to use the word for. This means that since God is righteous, something naturally follows from that idea. And here's the thought. The righteous God is angry. I know that many of us find this concept to be harsh, and in our society, we've been taught to reject that utterly. I recently heard a trusted evangelical preacher say, the last thing we need is any more sermons entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. God is not a God of wrath, but a God of mercy or forgiveness or love. That's God. And so we hear, how can God of love send people to hell? See, I want you to imagine two men living near Auschwitz, the Nazi concentration camp in western Poland during the Second World War. During the last few months, the Nazis burned 6,000 bodies every day. The crematoria could not keep place with the demand, so the Nazis burned piles of bodies, 1,000 in each pile, out in the open. The smoke of the burning flesh could be seen for about 25 kilometers. The stench of burning flesh hung heavily over Auschwitz and attracted huge swarms of flies. It was as if a little bit of hell had been actualized on earth. I want you to imagine two men living nearby. One man, and we're going to call him Harry, decides to ignore it. He'll simply give himself to his family and his work and his career and his friends and and trying to make his neighborhood safe. And and, and Harry pays his taxes and and volunteers to help in recycling awareness campaign. He wants to get rid of non-biodegradable stuff in the garbage dump. And the other man, the second man, we're going to call him Frank. And Frank is furious. He's angry and he's filled with unspeakable wrath to the point of doing something, something drastic. Nothing can calm Frank down. He joins the underground. He sends crucial information to the Allies. He's speaking to his neighbors about this and saying, this, what's happening at Auschwitz, this cannot stand. He'll make everyone's life miserable until they notice what's going on. Let me ask you this question. Which of the two men, Harry or Frank, do you think is loving? If you answered Harry, because he's so kindly, you would have no conception of righteousness. How can a man remain calm while 6,000 innocent men, women, and children are being killed every single day? That calm, nice man has a callous disregard for human life. He is cruel, selfish, and unmoved by basic human dignity. No, Harry is not love at all. Frank is. The one overflowing with wrath is the very picture of what love is. For real love can never be divorced from righteousness. And that's how it is with God. Do you think even for an instant that this world of unrighteousness would not provoke God? Do you think that crime and hatred and jealousy and perversion, murder, 
rape, selfishness, lack of care for the poor. The killing of 300 unborn children every day in this country and more would leave God remain calm and unmoved. Only a loving God can be angry, be dreadfully provoked. Once you see that and realize that this impacts you, then this is the truth that fills the human heart with dread. You have to understand the dreadful truth. An all-loving, all-powerful God is filled or is brimming with wrath. And I know what many of us are thinking. Yes, God should be angry with Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and Pol Pot and, and ISIS and suicide bombers and rapists, but he surely shouldn't be angry with everyday garden variety sinners who have done so little wrong. Now, that's a good question, but let's hold that thought. I promise to get back to that, but for now, let's just notice that God is angry. What should we do with an angry God? How will he not consume all of us? That's the question of Romans 1 to 4. Were it not for the Easter story and the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus, what would happen to all of us? But that's not all our passage says. Look again at the beginning of verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The point is simple. This is now happening. Yes, right now. What Paul has in mind is not just that there is a day of judgment in the future, for yes, there is one, but that there is, if you will, a foretaste of that day right now. So I've said that there are a number of terrifying truths. The first was that the righteous God is angry. Prepare yourself. Here now the second. God's anger is now being poured out into this world. You see, when we come back, we're going to see that this earth right now is experiencing the anger of God. Some of the things that we experience, some of the things that seem harsh to us, are going on right now because God looks upon us and is dreadfully provoked with our attitudes and our actions. Again, you might be saying, boy, I just wish that you were talking a little more hopefully. But again, let me respond by saying that unless this truth is recognized, there is no reason for us ever to seek salvation. Let's grasp this truth first. How do we understand a righteous God that is angry? We have difficulty with the concept, likely because we don't understand that anger, righteous anger, can be the result of love. When we think of anger, we might think of an irrational eruption, an exhaustion of patience. But can righteous anger be the result of deep love? After the break, Dr. Neufeld will continue talking about the result of God's anger. It's great to have you with us again today. And if you're enjoying Bible teaching from Dr. John Neufeld, might I suggest that you subscribe to our Bible Matters publication. Bible Matters is a free publication filled with biblically-based articles from Dr. Neufeld and other pastors, Bible teachers, and ministry friends right across Canada. To sign up for your free subscription today, visit our website at backtothebible.ca or give us a call even right now at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. I know there is a great day of judgment coming. Listen to the description of this in Revelation 20 verses 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. That scene describes a day which God has reserved for himself. 
It is a day when every detail of our life history will be completely searched out. And God will judge people for what they are proud of and what they are ashamed of, for what they remember and what they have forgotten, for what they did and for the hidden secrets of the heart that were the engine or the motivation, the driving of all their actions. That day is coming. But God is not simply waiting for that day. He's doing something today. Right now, this planet, this generation of humanity is already subject to the beginnings of the demonstration of his anger. There is stuff that happens in this world today because God is angry. To many, even to many Christians, that's almost inconceivable. They think that nice things come from God and that not nice things are from the devil or chance or human freedom. They can't conceive of anything coming from an angry God. But the Bible reads differently. For instance, Jude 5 says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jude says that it was Jesus himself who both saves and destroys. Are you shocked? Jeremiah says the same thing about the Babylonians when they came to destroy Jerusalem. Speaking of Israel, Jeremiah says, Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because, he writes, the Lord has afflicted on her the multitude of her transgressions. Why do you think Ananias and Sapphira fell down dead? Because they lied to the Holy Spirit. And God put them to death on the spot. Why do you think a man named Elimus in Cyprus suddenly went blind? Because according to Acts 13, he was trying to turn the proconsul away from the gospel, and God simply struck him with blindness as a sign. God was provoked. Listen to Exodus 4, verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, that's to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, please don't misunderstand me. When someone is blind, it does not necessarily mean that they have sinned, and this is judgment. And when someone's healthy, it doesn't mean that that must be a good person. I would think that John chapter 9, verse 2 would banish that thought from our minds. That, by the way, is the incident about the healing of the man who was born blind from birth. Jesus is very clear. This blindness is not because this man has sinned. It's not that simple. In fact, if we were to come to the conclusion that bad things happen to bad people and that good things happen to good people, kind of like karma, well, you're completely on the wrong track. But I raise these issues because so many of us have this placid view of God in which we assume that God's greatest attribute is his niceness, kind of like a 21st century Canadian, kind of like us. Don't you see what idolatry that is? It's creating God in our image. See, we can't conceive of a God who makes someone blind. We can't conceive of a God who would put someone to death. We can't conceive of the righteous anger now being poured out. And we come to understand God's righteous love. It should terrify the human heart. It should drive us to the cross of Christ. It should make the cross the only solution to the human dilemma. So we've looked at two truths. That should terrify our hearts. The first, that the righteous God is angry, and that the second is that the righteous God is already now pouring out his wrath on the earth. Now, here's the third truth that should terrify our hearts. God is angry for righteous reasons. Let's read the first half of verse 18. Paul here says, speaking about the wrath of God being revealed, he says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
I see in this passage three reasons for God's anger. The first is ungodliness. It means we live without God. It means we lack devotion to Him, reverence for Him. It's a failure to worship Him. I I can put it this way. We deny Him. But why is that such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because it's a great crime. It's the greatest of all crimes. It's greater than the Holocaust. To deny God is the unspeakable evil. Now, allow me a trite illustration. I want to begin by confessing my crime. I have killed many mosquitoes in my time, perhaps even hundreds, without even the smallest twinge of conscience. I know you're shocked, but it's true. When they light up on my arms, legs, or neck in order to get a little snack of my blood, which, by the way, I've got lots, and they need only a little bit, I'll simply crush their fragile bodies and then flick them onto the ground or into the garbage bin. What's more, I think mosquitoes are ugly. I think they're annoying. I think they're a pain. In fact, I can't even think of enough bad things to say about mosquitoes. I think we ought to spray poisons that kill their nesting areas. I think we ought to declare Manitoba and Saskatchewan a mosquito-free zone. Now, how do you feel about me now? Okay, you know, it's no big deal. But what if I were to tell you I felt that way about certain people? Would you be laughing then? Then when a street person asked me for change, Money that I had plenty of. I was simply annoyed. I shot him and threw his body into a garbage bin. Would we say that's no big deal? Ah, you say, yeah, but that's a crime. Why is that? It would be a crime because we know that a human being is worth infinitely more than a mosquito. Yes, that's the insight we need. It's a matter of the worth of a thing. Well, what do you think about the glory of God? What is that worth? If we're actually talking about the real thing, then his worth is infinitely more than the life of a human. Otherwise, we're not talking about God. I know many of us are uncomfortable talking like this. It takes us out of our comfort zones. But I remember reading a quote from Charles Misner. He was a scientific specialist in general relativity. He was speaking about why Albert Einstein was so skeptical about the church. Misner tells us that Einstein was a very religious man, but that he looked to what preachers said about God and felt they were blaspheming. He said, Einstein had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. So I want to talk about the real thing. A God of infinite majesty, infinite creativity, infinite glory, infinite power, infinite knowledge, infinite being and existence, infinite wisdom, a God whose very presence demands we worship, a reality so profound that the greatest moral evil is to fail to worship. This failure is unspeakable wickedness, for all other human evil merely flows like a river from this headwater. That's why God is angry. God knows he is worthy of all glory. So why else is God angry? Well, look at verse 18. So again, God is angry. The first reason is our godlessness. The second reason, Paul says, is wickedness. We break God's moral laws. Well, of course we do. After our refusal to worship him, we also refuse to obey him. He is the author of morality, and we have chosen to ignore him. Every one of us has done this. God has placed into the heart of every human being an innate understanding of right and wrong, and we have responded by breaking his moral laws. It's called sin. Not only do we do this, but we do more. We conspire to suppress the truth. 
In other words, we're not just happy to simply be involved in ungodly and immoral behavior, but we seek to take others along. We're all involved in a global conspiracy to keep the knowledge of God from others. The great human experiment is this. How far can we go in a universe which breathes out the glory of the Creator? How far can we go to suppress this from every single human being? Now, as bad as this news sounds, Paul is going to make it sound worse yet. It's not until we see how wretched our condition is that we're going to see how desperately we need a Savior. The cross is an answer to our moral cancer. Yet, if we think we might not die of this disease, or there's still hope for us, well, in that case, we'll never need the cross. But we do need the cross, so hang on. The good news is coming. Continue with us as we go through Romans. John, you've got me again. I think a lot of people, when they think of anger, they sort of parallel that with temper. And uh, growing up as a redhead, you know, I had some temper issues. And uh, But what you're talking about is something very different. But people say, you know, you need to control your anger. They uh, always quote the verse, don't let the sun go down on your anger. But the anger here, the, that godly anger that we're talking about is a different thing. Yeah, it really is. Um, it's hard for us sometimes to conceptualize righteous anger. Maybe because so many of us have never witnessed it in our lives. Um, if you come from an abusive home, uh, you might think of anger only in a negative way. And I cannot help but think that that's how people do view anger. But when we've seen anger righteously, I use the example of an individual living next to a concentration camp. When we see anger against injustice and unrighteousness, when we see anger against human callousness, I think we begin to get a sense, just a little glimpse of who God actually is. And we do need to understand that when God is angry, his anger is very different than the sinful anger that we often experience. So how should that anger affect me personally? What does it do for me personally? Well, like all of God's attributes, uh, they do glorify him, but they are also for our good if we pay attention to them. And I can see God's anger. I know you, Ben, have mentioned this. I can see God's anger as an expression of his love. And since he's revealed it, you know that he's revealed it for our good, and he's allowed us to respond in the appropriate way so that we wouldn't fall under it. So there's a lot of things that I think that we can take as positives from a message about anger. Thanks, John. Something that struck me during today's Bible teaching is that as followers of Jesus, we need to be cautious that we don't create a God of our preference. We need to see the truth of who he is, our need for him, and respond appropriately to his worthiness, his glory, and his anger. Join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld talks about the six self-evident truths that leave the human heart without excuse. That's all on tomorrow's edition of Back to the Bible Canada. For this past month, we've been hearing messages from our new Bible teacher, Dr. John Newfeld. I hope that you've been enjoying his daily Bible teaching and that you've been learning from his messages and applying the biblical truths to your daily life. For the month of February, we want to offer a very special gift to our loyal listeners and ministry friends. For this month only, we'll be giving away as our gift a copy of Dr. Newfeld's series on Philemon, an alternative lifestyle. 
If you'd like your own copy of this great series or think it would encourage someone you know or a friend, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.